I'm black. I'm a gang leader. I'm doing 100 years in prison. I stab people for fun. I'm locked in a cell 24 hours a day in solitary confinement. I'm not a lot of other people. All right, we are back with another episode of Comeback Stories. Today's guest, Andre Norman. Welcome, Andre. Thanks for having me, fellas. Pleasure to be here. Yes, sir. Thank you, man. Thank you for making the space and the time. I know you're a very, very busy man, so we're blessed to have you on here uh, to share your comeback story. What your life was like growing up. Build us up to the story of uh, where you're at today. My story is symptomatic of a lot of people being from the inner city, black. I grew up in the 70s, so I was born in 67. My mom had six kids. Her first husband went to jail for robbing banks, and she met my dad, a local hustler, and she had four more kids. And they used to fight a lot. And my father's 6'6", so it was never a fair fight. And then you grow up with that. Then you start going to school eventually, and you start having kids throw rocks at you and call you names because integration of schools was a new thing. Black kids and white kids going to the same school wasn't like really a happy-go-lucky thing for everybody. Then you get to the point where your dad leaves the house. So when I was a young man, the three things I learned at nine years old, one, it's okay to hit people. Two, I better protect myself. And three, I can quit anytime. Those are the lessons that from nine years old crystallized in my mind of this is how I see the world. I went to bad public schools, bad scenarios, and I'd love to say that I went to prison because I didn't have a dad or my mom worked too many jobs or the teachers sucked. I went to prison where I ended up because I learned a lesson at nine. It's okay to quit. And I internalized that lesson. And anytime something got hard, it didn't go my way or it was too challenging, I just quit. So when you quit on everything positive, there's only negativity left. And negativity takes you one of two places where I'm from, prison or the graveyard. So I got lucky and went to prison. When I got there, it was like a reunion of all my friends who quit sports, all my friends who quit band, all my friends from the principal's office, all my friends from special needs, all my friends I used to chase girls with at the mall in the movie theater, all my friends who didn't have the parental guidance that I didn't have, or they learned those same type of lessons that violence is acceptable, quitting is acceptable, you know, saying not giving your best is acceptable, all these things and chasing the shiny object is acceptable. It was just like a giant reunion when I got to the penitentiary. And when I got there, that's, that's what I saw. It was like thousands upon thousands of people who had my same story, white, black, and Spanish alike. Can you tell us a little bit about when you say the, the penitentiary, just kind of what led to that? Or maybe even we always go back and ask about like an early, an early memory of pain. And I think you've already touched on that a little bit, but just maybe lead us into the journey into what happened before the comeback, like the fall. Okay, well, in the sixth grade, special lunch kid, I mean, free lunch kid, poor kids made fun of me. So I started going to the park to sell weed to make money. But the other thing that I did was I joined the band because that's what kids do in the sixth grade. You join the band. And I was given a trumpet. I played my trumpet all through middle school. And by the end of middle school, I had gotten really good, but also myself. And Miss Ellis, my music teacher, sent me to a special school, a magnet school for musicians. And when I got there, I went to the band room and it was like a bunch of nerds. So I'm playing music with the nerds in the morning. Then in the afternoon, I'm out with my pistol and my, I'm saying cool coat and I'm out in the streets. Then eventually my cool guy friends were like, yo, what's up with that box you're always carrying? It was my trumpet. 
They said either get rid of the trumpet or, or get rid of us. And I gave up my trumpet because I couldn't be without my friends. And when I gave up my trumpet, I actually gave up the, the dream that I had, the thing that was going to purport me through high school, into college, into whatever life I was going to have. And when I gave that up, I had nothing. So in spite of not having a dad, in spite of being poor, in spite of a lot of things, I had a dream. And without a dream, it all came crashing down. Mm, it's powerful, man. We love that question. And we've asked all of our guests these first two questions because it connects the dots. And part of our mission in creating this podcast on comeback stories is to create community. We're both recovering addicts in sobriety now. And what's beautiful about sobriety is it creates this connection. You know, one of our fellow friends, Joe Polish, would say the opposite of addiction is connection. And that's why we're doing this. And so just to hear these first five minutes of your story, man, it's just, it reminds us why we're doing this. And our intention is to remind the listeners that they're not alone and you're never alone. And even if you do feel alone, that especially in these days with what everything that's going on. So I just think the pain and the mess, it's so much more relatable. And I believe that pain is what connects us. It's part of the shared human experience. So it's kind of why we always kick it off with that. Gotcha. Alone is alone is an option that we think we're forced to choose. And you go into a store, you look at something and it's overpriced or it's damaged or it's not what you want, but you think you need it. So you pick it anyway and say, I just make the best of this instead of saying no and walking out. So I had a discussion with friends all the time. Joe Polish's scenario is some games you win by not playing. But if you play the game, you're guaranteed to lose. And some of the scenarios that we're playing and being alone is a hand that we pick up. How do you get your cards? A dealer gives them to you. Somebody dealt me the cards of poverty. Somebody dealt me the cards of bad parenting. Somebody dealt me the cards of poor schools. What I didn't understand as a child is I didn't have to play those cards. I could have said, fold, deal again. We take the first set of cards we get and we play. You watch a poker game on TV. Nobody plays one hand. There's multiple hands. You keep playing and playing to get the hand that you want, and then you bet on it. I bet on the first hand they gave me, and it was a losing hand. When the truth is, I should have folded my hand and waited. But I didn't know I had that option. So I thought I had to play the hand that they would dealt me. And, I, and I, it was a losing hand. And the only way I was going to win that was to not play it. Me and Darren talk a lot about the, the four agreements. And it reminds me of exactly what you're saying is that when we grow up, we start to agree. We make these agreements with ourselves. Right. But they're passed along to us. Like if it's our parents or it's our family, they're just passing along what they know. And so ultimately, there's a way out. There's other options. There's space to make choices. And I know for me and Darren personally, that wouldn't even happen if it wasn't for the self inflicted mess through the addictions of our past. So it's powerful stuff and a lot of great lessons. Who would you say your first real teacher was? In life? Um, Good or Ms. bad, yeah. Oh, my first teacher was, I mean, on a positive would be Ms. Oliver. Ms. Oliver was a lady who taught me how to read in the third grade. She taught me my learning style. She showed me the capacity that I have and how to access it um, when nobody else would take the time to teach me. On a negative would be 
I would say my cousin, I had a cousin, I'm not going to put his full name on here. He taught me how to do robberies. And he was actually an addict and he would go out and he would rob people. And he would come down and pick me up and take me with him. And they would pull up and I'd watch, they go rob people. And I watched how they did it. I was like, okay. And the same thing, um, he took me to his town, which was outside of the city where drugs was like three times the cost. So they used to bring me out there and I used to sit in hotel. I used to bring the drugs from, from Boston to Hare City. And my job was to sit in the hotel room and make sure that they brought me the money. So I'm, I'm selling heroin at like 13, 14 years old in the suburbs. I'm already trafficking. I mean, it was not at the state, but so I'm sitting in the hotel room. There's prostitutes, dope fiends and crackheads and anybody running around. And I'm 13 sitting here holding a bag of heroin. And my cousin would bring me the money. I give them give them the dope. We just do this all night. This is my big cousin. And so he had a huge influence on me relative to what was possible. And then I started copying what he taught me and putting my own spin on it. Okay, he was an addict. I'm not. So I can make this money and I can do stick ups and I, I can hustle. And he actually gave me that broader vision of that space because you do what you know or what you see. And he showed me what was out there with the stick up game. Yeah, I love what you talk about. You you can only do what you see. You know, as we move forward into uh, your biggest adversity in your life, I heard you say on here earlier and on multiple podcasts that you know you don't blame your circumstances or anything like that for you going to prison and having the consequences. You you say you quit on all your positive options. What do you think was the biggest thing holding you back from becoming the man who you are today? That's willing to go through processes and work for that end result. What do you think was causing you to to quit on so many things? What was causing me to quit was I was taught it was okay to quit. That's the first thing. So you don't carry a purse because you were taught you shouldn't carry a purse. That's why you don't carry one. Somebody told you you shouldn't carry a purse. You don't do certain things because you was told. You don't do those things. You don't drive on the right side of the road because we're taught in America you drive on the left side of the road. Well, you go to London, you go to Jamaica, they drive on the opposite side and they're taught opposite. You do what you're taught. So when we go to these foreign countries, like, wow, look at them. They're strange. No, we're in their country. And they're not strange. It's just strange to us. But we say it's strange. And we put it on them. We never say, damn, we just do it differently. It's no, they're wrong. Or they're different. Instead of saying, hey, it's just a different space. I was taught quitting is okay. And I maximize that. If you give me an option, I'm going to take it when it fits. It's that simple. You say, Dre, for those in addiction, when you get stressed out, somebody told you or taught you drugs or alcohol is an option to get rid of your pain. And you're like, all right, cool. I'm going to go to this option. It becomes an option. So what happens is quitting is a symptom. It's not the problem. Right. Drugs is a symptom. It's not the problem. I could take you, lock you in the basement, and for six months, that's what the problem with drug treatment is. They deny access. They don't fix the underlying problem. Why were you using drugs? Not let's take drugs away from him or let's take drugs away from her. No, let's, Andre keeps quitting. Let's give him more stuff. No, it's not the, the act of quitting and the act of using drugs is the reaction to what we've been taught or what we're running from. Right. I'm running from having to work hard. I'm running from having to stand up. You're running from whatever kind of pain or trauma that's in your life. And we pick our outlets. Addicts pick whatever they choose. I didn't become an addict. I became violent. I became angry. Anger became my outlet. 
I'm saying? And once I had my little little light in the sky was my trumpet, which I didn't even realize was my light in the sky. Sometimes it's our grandmother, sometimes it's our aunt, and that person dies or moves away, then the balance that we had that they provided is now gone, and we go full tilt into our addiction or to our bad behavior. I hear that. I feel that. And oftentimes, and yeah, it takes us, it takes something happening to us oftentimes for us to even question the things that we've been taught and to surrender those things. We would like to know what was that moment of adversity for you that had you feel like you were at your lowest point and really opened your mind to the possibility of, I need to change a lot of things about me. Most addicts and most people who are living in trauma, I believe my own reality was good. That's it. I mean, I believe I've convinced myself that I was okay. You go to any bar and find a dude who's about to get stone cold drunk for the twentieth time this week. How you doing? I'm great. Everybody here knows who I am. I'm safe. My Uber set up. I'm not going to get a DUI. I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm just going to kill myself. Right. Two more percent tonight. That's all. And he or she will tell you that they're fine, and they will tell you all the reasons they're fine, and their world is fine. I convinced myself that my reality was real, that I was okay in this bad space, that I'm in prison, locked in a basement, 24 hours a day in a cell, don't have sunlight, can't see my family, can't go home. I'm saying I got a knife for myself. All the, But if you asked me at that time, I'd have told you I'm doing great. Because I have to, it's a slow descent. I'm saying it's like you say, if you put up a hot pot, you put on a pot full of boiling water, you throw a crab and it'll jump out. But you throw, put in the warm and just put it on settle, and it'll, it'll sit there and gradually die. So I slowly descended into this space, and I lied to myself at every juncture that this is okay, that I'm okay, this isn't bad. So for the first six years of my prison sentence, I was doing fine, other than the fact that I was in prison, which I negated in my thinking. Addicts do what they do, and they're like, other than the fact that I passed out, threw up, and then they got run over by a car, and last night was okay. Or other than the fact that my mother and my sister's disappointed not talking, my kids ain't coming near me, yeah, it's okay. We start telling ourselves it's okay. And we listen to ourselves, which is 80% of the problem. I didn't have a low point because I was riding high in my world. <laughs> in my world, I was doing great. People from outside thought I was doing bad, but if you ask Andre, I was doing fantastic. I'm a top-ranking gang leader. I'm running stuff. I got status. I'm saying I got respect. What, what more could a brother want? Oh, it's freedom? That's nothing. And I, I reached that line of realizing that I had become the king of nowhere. That's when I was like, wait a minute. I'm the king of nowhere. And, and it hit, when it hit me, it hit me. The same way drugs make sense to people, alcohol makes sense to people, or sex or gambling makes sense to people. It made sense to me that I should be here. Then somebody said to me, Dre, if you're really the boss, do the thing for yourself that you really want to do. I saw a study to let yourself out. I always said I don't want to go home because I don't have a home to go to. That's what I told myself. I don't go home to what? I don't have a home. I don't have a home. Then he took the home part out and said, just let yourself out. Forget where you go, but you don't want to be here. So I justified my existence in prison because I didn't have a home to go to. What were some of the first actions that you took in prison to go from that narrative of the king of nowhere to actually taking control and taking responsibility for the future that you wanted to create? The first thing I had to do was reestablish a goal. 
And I reestablish a goal for myself because if you don't have a goal, you don't have a destination. Your right. goal doesn't have to be physical, or, but you have to have, I want to be, you have to have an I statement. I want to be X. I want to go Y. I want to achieve something. You need an I statement, not a we statement, an I statement. So I created an I statement and it was, I want to go to Harvard University. Hmm. That was my I statement. And that became my goal. So I said to myself, what is in me that's stopping me from achieving my new goal? And I said, I'm black. I'm a gang leader. I'm doing 100 years in prison. I stab people for fun. I'm locked in a cell 24 hours a day in solitary confinement. I'm not a lot of other people. I can't read and comprehend that. Well, I just made a list of what in me is stopping me from achieving my goal. It's usually what are you doing to stop me from achieving my goal? Who's in my way? What's in my way versus what's inside of me to stop? So I made my list of what was inside of Andre. And I started repairing that list and working on that list. Being black was a problem at one level, but it wasn't stopping me from going up. Being a gang leader was a problem, but that wasn't what stopped me from going up. I had to fix all of that. Then I could go. For those that don't know all about your story, can you just tell us a little bit more about the prison experience and like how long you were in, maybe what you learned, you touched on this a little bit, but what you learned most about other people? What I learned from first thing about prison is a complete waste of time. I want to make that clear. There's, there's no bigger waste of time than locking yourself in a prison. Now, if that happens to be a maximum security prison run by the state, if it happens to be a job that you hate or relationships that you can't stand. Being locked up is being locked up. So if you're locking yourself in a scenario that is unhealthy for you, that is like a complete waste of time. So people think, oh, I wasn't in prison. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. I'm saying bars are not a prison mate. I, I think my mom told me that. Bars, it ain't, the, it ain't the bars that make you in prison. It's how you see yourself. It's how you see your relationship to the world. It's how you see how you belong and your impact and what you're going to do with your life. If you don't have any plans for your life, you just get up, brush your teeth, go to work, finish that work, come home from work, eat dinner, watch TV and go to bed, get up, brush your teeth. If that's all you do, that, that's Stedman's thing. It's like you get up, brush your teeth, row, 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 and you don't have purpose. So for me, I needed to find purpose and I needed to apply myself. But when I went in, I went in as just an 18 year old kid who was scared, joined a gang and started fighting my way from the, the number 15,000 person in the system. So I was number three and I got transferred to nine different states. I've been in federal and state penitentiaries across the country. I've been in riots on airplanes, riots on the ground. I've fought police dogs, locked in cells. Anything that you can do inside of a prison, I've done or experienced. So, Bullying guards, bullying prisoners, selling drugs, stabbing people. I've been down at a whole lane. And but again, in my mind, this is the track I'm supposed to be. And my thing is, wherever you put me, I'm gonna give my all. That's the thing. I give my all. I'll just give my all to the wrong purpose and to the wrong goal. You you said there was obviously a lot of fighting. What would you say looking back on it now? What were you fighting for? At the end of the day, even if it's about status and about at the end of the day, it's about money. For those who don't understand prison, what I mean, you see, prisons it's like going to Mars for most people because they've never been. I'm going to give you a scenario around the finances. 
I, there was a book called Freakonomics, which was so bad and so off when it came to drug dealers and drug numbers. They, they just made that stuff up. You know what I'm saying? I don't know who. I, somebody quoted that shit to me. I'm like, these dudes are stupid. But people bought it. So God bless them. I'm glad they was able to get their hustle on. But if you take a prison with 2,000 people, which is not a big prison, and make half of the people drug addicts, which is not a real percentage. It's usually like eight. That's 1,000 people. A bag of heroin will cost you $50. So if we can sell a bag of heroin to every addict on the yard, that's $50,000 a day, $350,000 a week. You know what I'm saying? Oh, 50000 a day, three fifty a week, $1.4 a month. $1.4 million a month in heroin sales is available if every addict just wants one bag. We know they want three or four. Then you're throwing cocaine, throwing pills, throwing gambling, throwing homebrew. And, and now you're talking about a commerce of about $6 million in a prison that holds about 2,000 people. Nobody's in there fighting for colors or sides of street. or They're fighting for money. There's that much money. Now you interject cell phone. One cell phone will go from anywhere like $2,000. Now you go back. Well, how many people in that prison want a cell phone? Everybody. But if you can sell a thousand people a phone for two thousand dollars, you just said two million dollars. I can I can walk into a prison mall with a thousand cell phones and sell it by by lunchtime. Everybody wants a phone, and that's the market. So right now you're talking about millions of dollars being made behind these walls in legal contraband, and forget who, why, when, where, but that's what the beef is about right now. There's the people who are lost and left behind. And this is what they do while they're left behind. So I'm not justifying it. I don't think this is what it, but if you're going to leave me down here, then you're going to say this is available to me and this is what I'm going to go with. It's amazing that you go from, you know, fighting for money and thinking that's the, of the most value to you and to go from where you were then to where you are today. And, you know, we just want to know what's most valuable to you today and take us through the things that you've been able to do and accomplish since you left prison. I mean, the most valuable thing today is not being free is easy. Free is a concept. What does freedom really mean? Freedom means I have the ability to impact other people's lives. And my freedom didn't come after I got out. I got my freedom six months before I came home. Because when my mind went free, I became free. So somebody says, hey, November 15th, that's your day, Dre. That's when they let you out. That's when they let me out. But I'll tell you what here, June 12th, 1999 is when my mind went free and I finally got the big picture. Like people have been pouring stuff for me the whole time. And it wasn't about becoming free in a sense of physicality because the parking lot, I'm free. They got CEOs to come to work every day. They hate their job. They're free. You know saying? So freedom is the ability to actually live. And I hadn't been living. I was like 32 years old at the time. I just turned 32. It was three days before my birthday. So I was about to turn 32. And I got my mental freedom. There's nothing more powerful than mental freedom. I mean, because once you have mental freedom, there's no addictions. I'm saying there's no stress. I'm saying there's, there's no bad days because you understand that you as a being are more powerful than bad days, more powerful than addiction, more powerful than anything else. And that was the thing that I'd always been missing, that I didn't understand me. And the, they say that we're made in the image of God, but I didn't see that. I just saw like the trash and there's no way I'm going to make the image of God. So I'm just going to act a fool. What happened on June 12th? Why that date? What's significant? June 12th 
is the day I sat down with a mentor, um, a great mentor, and he gave me like an awakening, an understanding of submission and understanding how to give and the world is bigger than me. I had a lot of me, me, me plans. I had tons and tons of me, me, me plans. I want a car. I want a house. I want this. It was all me, me, me. I was on the right track, heading the right way, but it was all about me, me, me. And that's not what life is about, but that's what my life was about to be about. And so luckily for me, that's the day I finally came into understanding that the greatest amongst us are the person who helps somebody else. When you use your ability, gifts, and, pl- and blessings to help somebody else, that's the greatest gift. There's this common theme with all of our guests so far, and I think it's us. That's what we believe, too, of, of love and service. The service piece of it in the world of addiction, we know that the core of our disease is selfishness and self-centeredness. So the antidote is service. And what great way to, for me personally, to get out of my own way to get out of my own way and, and actually know that like the quickest way out of self-pity or out of any kind of funk is just to go help somebody else. Yeah. I mean, entrepreneurs will get stressed out and start another business. So that's how that works. And for me, it was just learning to, because I grew up without, so I made all the excuses to be selfish. I didn't have heat as a child. I didn't have food as a child. I didn't have guidance as a so I'm going to hoard all this stuff. Now I'm going to because I have every excuse to be a hoarder. I have every excuse known to man to be a hoarder and not be concerned about anybody. It's time for me to get mine, and that's a horrible attitude. And it's another form of prison. Those people die lonely. They die shallow. I'm not going to yeah. die lonely, and I'm not going to die shallow. Yeah, I know. For me, at least, I know my my definition of gratitude changed tremendously. I have a similar mindset as you. Like when I get this money, or when I have all these women, when I have access to these things, then I'll be grateful. And it's hard for us just the way that we live to be grateful when we're all trying to get from one thing to the next or just survive. And I want to ask you, what are you most grateful for today? I'm grateful that I have the ability to conceive ideas that can impact the world. I've worked in over thirty different countries, and I've worked all over the United States. And I've actually created programs and done interventions from drugs to suicide to gangs that have literally saved people's lives. I can point to people and be like, that person is alive because of the work and the ideas and the efforts that I put forth. And for me, to help somebody stay alive supersedes um, me making money, supersedes me having a big house or a big car. It supersedes people giving me pats on the back that I didn't realize I had that power in me. I didn't embrace it. So I literally sit down and say, okay, Dre, what can you do to be helpful today? And then understanding that my helpfulness might actually save a lot. So for me, that's gratitude. That's like, I mean, give me a better reason for being, give me, give me greater purpose. If there's greater purpose, I haven't run, run into it yet. I'm looking. I'm always looking for better or bigger because that's I'm an American. So bigger and better is always part of the script. But I got to this space and help saving people from dying. I mean, just the realization, like, wow, you just did that. I mean, like, you did that. And then I taught other people to do it. We had a guy at the prison a couple months ago, Was a lieutenant was getting stabbed to death. And one of the guys from my program, Academy of Hope, ran over and saved his life and was willing to give his own life to save. He got stabbed six times to save this man's life. And that was, to me, super grateful, gratifying, because... I'd have done that. 
But in my absence, or in my not even being there, the lessons that I shared with this man and that we collectively shared in the academy empowered that man to go put his own life on the line to do what was right. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about Academy of Hope? Academy of Hope is a prison-based program that reduces violence. There are a lot of violent people, angry people, leaders who are in prison, and I used to be one of them. I was a prison boss, and I was an angry guy, and I ran around with knives and everything else. So there are not a lot of programs for the 2% of people who call themselves and are bosses of prisons. There's generally, there's generally just solitary confinement, some kind of lockdown. There's no actual program because the people who run the prisons don't understand them. So they just lock us down. So two and a half years ago, there was a riot at a prison in South Carolina. Seven people were murdered. 30 people were wounded. And they locked the entire prison system down because there was going to be retaliations the following day. So for five months, 19,000 people stay locked in their cells. I was requested to come to South Carolina and speak to these men. And I went to South Carolina. I took two guys with me. And we went in and we spoke to them. And we opened the doors for the first time in five months. And we talked to 8,000 prisoners in 10 prisons over six days. And there wasn't one fight, no retaliation, nothing. It was all peace and harmony, like, okay, let's do this. And it wasn't because of anything other than we spoke to them in a vernacular and a voice that they understood. We spoke to their pain. We understand what they want out of life. And we said that. It's not do what we say do because it's good for us. Oftentimes, we're told to behave because it's to somebody else's benefit. If you keep getting in trouble, you're going to mess up my job. Or you keep doing this, you're going to mess up my thing. So we've been in there for almost three years. We went from seven dead people to one fist fight. And it's based on caring. It's like showing people you care. When you can say nobody cares about me, you can tell yourself that lie. You can do anything to anybody. But when you have somebody who cares about you and has expectations for you, it's harder to jump through that window and smash somebody out the door because you don't want to disappoint that person. Sounds like an amazing program. How would somebody that's listening, that's interested, how could they get involved? You can go to AndreNorman.com or Academy. I think it's AcademyHopeGlobal.com. And if you're a speaker or somebody who wants to go inside the prison, I can take you inside. That's easy. You can go inside. If you teach classes or you teach yoga, you teach any kind of business entrepreneurship, you physically want to go inside, I can take you inside. If you say, no, something, Dre, I live too far away or that's not my thing. I have male and female going. My son at 14 went in and spent a day. So there's that component. And if you just say, I got a training, I created this training on mindfulness or whatever. I just want to give you the training and you give it to the guys, whether it's videos or written work or done. And everybody at Genius donates books. We have almost every genius book known to man is sitting in the prison because the truth is public schools get horrible educational books. Prisons get even worse. So the prison is not built based on education. It's based on punishment. So the type of educational stuff they get is the lowest, least possible that they're allowed to get. Nobody's giving them Dan Sullivan. Nobody's giving them Cameron Herald. Nobody's giving them Sean Stevenson. Nobody's giving them Joe Polish. Nobody's giving them these great minds on how they can take control of their lives. So I bring them the great minds of our country and our world. And I bring in Chris Voss. And I bring in all these different people, Elko. I bring in the folks who are actually doing great stuff and say, yo, people are paying $100,000 for this information. And it's the best. 
I'm not gonna give you the BS. There's a lot of that hype motivational stuff. I ain't gonna put no names to it. I don't do no hype motivation. I'm bringing you what the people are going for, what matters to the people, and what business leaders, entrepreneurship rules the world, in my opinion. And everything else comes second. Because they know how to get stuff started, get stuff managed, and get stuff done. It's not about, oh, it's somebody else's money. Oh, it's somebody else's time. Entrepreneurs go do it themselves. So I bring in the best of the best on paper, via classes or in person so they can learn the same way I learn. I think Academy of Hope is amazing because I see that there are men that need a voice and that need a force. And that voice is a man of compassion, a man of, you know, that can relate a man that's been in the shoes that they've been in before. I know oftentimes you see, you know, yourself in those men when you speak to them, if you had, one quote or one message that you would send to, you know, that younger Andre or that somebody that was in that position with all the knowledge that you have now, what would you say to them? What I would say to a 15-year-old version of myself is find counseling. Find, that's what I found at the end of my road when I got inside. Go to counseling, find some professional counseling and get some professional help. Don't talk to the homies. Don't talk to the guy at the liquor store. Don't think your girlfriend can save you. Um, it's not a church issue or a mosque issue. Go find professional counseling because you have what we've known as professional issues. Mental health, anger management, call it what you want. You have a professional problem that needs professional. If my teeth stop hurting, I'm not calling my girlfriend. If my teeth start hurting, I'm not calling the pastor. You know say If my teeth start hurting, I'm not going to the liquor store. I'm going to a dentist. You know why? He's a professional. The dentist is a professional, and I respect him as a professional who fixed teeth. So anytime I got a toothache, I see a dentist. Yo, go see your cousin Bobby, man. You know he'll hold you down. What are you going to do for my tooth? But when it comes to emotional issues and mental trauma, we take the advice of people who have no skill set. Man, go see you. Yeah, man, yo, check this out, man. And we're going to tell them 80% of the problem. We ain't going to tell them the real problem. We're going to tell them 80% of the problem, and they're going to fix none of it. Whereas you go to a dentist's office, he don't need you to tell him the problem. He knows what he's doing. So counseling and therapy, self-help, one-on-one, group, go to something. Go to someplace, and when you get there, please be honest. Not 75% honest, not 85% honest. Be honest. Because I've worked with cancer patients, and my grandmother had cancer. And I know this for a fact. When they go to do operations, their goal is to take out 100% of the cancer. Because if they don't, that 2% they leave will regrow. So don't go to counseling and tell them 98% of the problem, leave 2%, the strongest 2%, nonetheless, because it'll regrow. If you decide to take my advice, whether you're 15 or 50, and seek help, please, the worst thing you can do is go tell a lie. You ain't hurting the dentist. You ain't hurting the doctor. You ain't hurting the nurse. You're hurting yourself. Go in there and say, no, something I'm going to tell the truth. I'm so glad you said that. And that's another big reason why we launched this podcast. And even though there's three men talking on this podcast and we will have men and women, we want to change the language of what a real man and what real strength looks like and sounds like and what those conversations look like talking about our fears and our vulnerabilities 
and loving ourselves and, and just getting real and honest and raw. And so for you to say that, it just reaffirms why we're here. So man, your, your inspiration, your academy, it's blowing my mind, man. You're bringing the fire. And I can tell you're a very, very humbled man, but I wanted to maybe go back and just talk a little bit about that dream to Harvard and was it fulfilled? Was it fulfilled? Did it go past beyond your wildest dreams? What went down? Nothing can go beyond your wildest dreams unless you allow, allow it to. Right. And that's the quitting. Once I determined, which was the thing we didn't cover, that I no longer could quit, my whole life changed. Before I could quit, once I said I can't quit and I accepted that, that I am no longer a quitter, then I had no choice but to get there. So in 1991, I said I'm going to Harvard. It took me eight years to get out of prison. So 1999, I came home. It took me about a year to get my first lecture on campus at Harvard, at the Afro-Am School, then the School of Government, then the School of Divinity, Divinity School. I'm giving lectures on campus. And it was in 2016, I was appointed as a fellow to Harvard Law School under Dr. Charles Ogletree. So it took me 25 years to arrive. But you know something? I didn't quit. And the miracle, the miracle is the process. I'm sure that's where a lot of the magic went down. Our last question for you for the day. So we know we can't do this alone and it takes the team. But who would you say is like that one person for you that would get your comeback story shout out? There's a guy in prison in Massachusetts. His name is Gordon Haas. He's a lifer, old white guy. Met him when I first came in. And he was the guy that tapped me on my shoulder and pointed me in a direction. When he saw me trying, and he saw me giving my all, and he saw me not quitting, he saw me going against all the obstacles, and he had the knowledge that I needed to get through. And he didn't give it to me at first because we weren't that close, and we never were that close. But when he saw me continually fighting and fighting and fighting to achieve what I wanted to achieve, one day he just pulled me over and tapped me on the shoulder and gave me the key to my future. And there's a lot of people who helped me along the way, but Gordon gave me that key to that door that freed me on, I'm saying it freed my mind. Like I said, my mind was locked. I had the concepts, I had the strategy, I had the tactics. I didn't have the heart to match up. They say the six inches between your brain and your chest wasn't connected. Gordon taught me how to connect it. And and everything everybody else had ever taught me was able to realize. My mother said, if you take 10% of your energy and let it loose, you turn the world upside down because you're so passionate. And I can think of Natan Schaefer, my rabbi, who gave me crazy information. I can think of a lot of people who poured into me, but the connection between my brain and my heart was just wasn't there. And Gordon Haas, who he was doing life, still is. He's been in jail for over 40 years. He's never coming home technically. And he could have said, he's not white. He's not from my neighborhood. He's not one of my guys. I don't know him like that. He wasn't selfish. He said, I see somebody trying. And he felt compelled to give me that missing piece. And so if I had to give a shout out to any one person, it would definitely be Gordon Haas. Well, we definitely want to thank Gordon Haas for pushing you and uh, inspiring you because today there are you know, people worldwide that are inspired by what you're bringing to the table. So we just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for 
tell everybody that's listening that quitting is not an option. And we thank you for everything that you're continuing to do for this world that you're a part of, man. It's definitely a blessing to have you here today. Yeah, I mean, the last thing, I just made it last week. You started your podcast this week. I started a program this week called Cafe of Hope. The Academy of Hope is for the guys inside. And when I was inside, I needed that. And the thing I came to realize in being inside was, guess who did time with me? My mom. And my mom tried everything she could to stop me from going to jail. And she tried everything she could to get me from acting crazy in jail. And nothing could work because she couldn't find the right people. So we started the Cafe of Hope for moms, for sisters, for grandmothers, for wives, for kids. So if you're a wife or mom or somebody and has a loved one in jail or out and you don't know how to help them, that's why we created the Cafe of Hope. You can go to cafehope.com and be like, yo, and just put your question, your comment, your scenario, and we're just going to give you the information you need to help your loved ones stay out. Because I wish my mom had a Cafe of Hope when I was a kid because she didn't went to this and said, what do I do for my 15-year-old? And someone would have told her counsel. And I might have never went to jail. So I want to give the next mom, what do I do for my 15-year-old who has these issues? And I can make a legitimate recommendation and suggestion for that mom on how to work with her son to keep him from going to jail. We know anybody that finds you, his life is going to be changed in the process. So just tell everyone where they can get a hold of you on on the internet, social media, all that. There's Cafe of Hope if you're somebody with a loved one in trouble, addiction, incarceration, criminal justice. Or you can just go to AndreNorman.com. Man, I'm there as well. Andre, I also want to just acknowledge you, man, for for who you are and how you show up in the world. And when I first met you, I talked about somebody in, in my life that was struggling. And also uh, my family teaches at an inner city school here in Phoenix that um, definitely at the time when I heard you speaking, I was like, they could hear his message. And I approached you about it. And you go, let's go. Let me know. I'll come back here tomorrow. I'll come. I'm flying out today. I'll come back next week. Like it was just open and down and it just really inspired me. And it, it made, there was something within you that I wanted. And I'm just grateful that, that we've connected and that inspiration has um, really lit a fire. And I'd like, we'd love to just maybe even talk to you a little bit offline on maybe how we can help serve the Academy of Hope. Definitely. And I always tell people, when you ask me to come to the school, I can look at my calendar. But if I act like one of my kids is in that school, I would have showed up the next day. If one of my relatives were there, I'm there the next day. So you always have to act as if it's one of your people in need of services, not mm-hmm. some abstract people from the other side of town or another dimension. Always respond as if it's your people who need these services. Because mm-hmm. then you won't be like, let's do it next week, next month, next meeting. It's as soon as possible. If my son needs something, there's no, I'll get back to him in three weeks or maybe on the next. No, it's now. So if we treat everybody like we treat our own, treat others like you want to be treated. So I'm always with the, I act as if my own are in need of that service. Because mm-hmm. like, don't act like that. I'm acting like the people who are in need don't matter. That's good. I didn't know that at the time, but now that I've heard that nugget, man, it's something that's really going to stick with me. And my hope from that is to, to carry that same perspective and vision because it's powerful, powerful stuff, man. Thank you. Thank you again for your time. We're oh. grateful. You inspired us. We got to give Paul a shout out. Paul, yes, you're sir. the man. Oh. Paul will be <laughs> producing this beautiful piece. Paul Colligan is our podcast guru and such a um, huge part of Comeback Stories behind the scenes. So shout out Paul Colligan. Absolutely.
All right. Thanks, Andre. Thank you. All right. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned.